I've entitled this message today, Perspective Shift, and I'll kind of begin with a little story. You know, uh, for several years back, I was given this pair of safety glasses, and they were, for whatever reason, tinted blue. But they were very comfortable and very helpful as I kind of did some projects around the house, and so I wore them. But it's kind of weird when you first put them on because they are blue. But what I didn't realize what would happen is over time, everything began to turn blue. (laughs) And as I took them off later in the day, after I'd been wearing them for a few hours, everything just looked kind of weird. Uh, Because my vision had adapted to that filter. I began to see things through that tent. And thankfully, over time, my eyes corrected. I was able to see things clearly. But what I would argue is we walk around in this world, we're wearing kind of world-tinted glasses. We begin to see things through a certain lens. And because the majority of this people in this world don't walk after the Lord, don't do things the way he's asked them to do. In fact, the scripture tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. What happens is our vision is tinted, our perspective is shifted, and we don't realize it. So when we come to the word of God, then it helps us to take off those glasses. It helps reorient us. But the thing it's probably going to do for you is what it did for me this week as I was studying through this passage. It made me angry. (laughs) It frustrated me because when you come to the scriptures, the scripture says, hey, this is how you should see life. And we say, well, no, I've been seeing life this other way. And so what I'm asking for you and for me to do as we come to the scriptures today is willing to is be willing to have your perspective shifted. Be willing to let go of all these different voices that you hear in this world, all the talking heads, all the kind of ways of the world this is how we do things. And just take a moment to say, well, what does the scripture say? Because if the scripture is the word of God then no matter how I feel, no matter how I think, no matter how I've done life in the past, I'm willing to change. I'm willing to do things God's way because God's way is the best way. All right, so uh, one quick insight here into this psalm. This Psalm 37 is, is very different from the psalms we've been covering. So often the psalms are directed toward God, but this psalm is actually directed toward people. So this psalm is very much like the book of Proverbs. And if you've studied the book of Proverbs, you know it's, it's commandments, it's directions on how to live a good life. And we're also told in this proverb, if you'll look at verse 25 real quick, look at there at Psalm 37 to verse 25. David writes, I have been young and now I am old. Right? This, that could be some of our life verse. Right? I, I have been young and now I am old. And and so what that tells us, what that instructs us is that David wrote this psalm later in life. And so David had gotten some perspective, some insight over time. And so this is a psalm when David's later in life, he's kind of seeing how things go in this world. And he's trying to give us instruction by the Holy Spirit on how to live a wise life. So I want to read the four verses we'll be covering today. Verse 1 Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, as you're moving through here, you see it's really clearly there's, there's commands, right? Do not fret, trust, you know, commit. There's all of these things as we move through this. And so I really, again, I wanted to move through the whole chapter and just wasn't able to because there was so much here that the Lord showed me. So let's begin with do not fret because of evildoers. Now, when I think of fret, I think of a guitar. 
that, that's what I think of. And, and so fret is not a word that we use too often. Um, but the, the original word fret, we might think about worrying, you know, being concerned about something, fretting about something. But actually, this word fret in the Hebrew is, is, is very um, instructive. It's very illustrative. It actually means to be hot. It means to burn, to be furious, to get heated up. And so that should meet us where we are at this current part of history. Immediately, this should convict us. Because for us, most of us walk around being hot, being heated up about the world system. About being heated up about the political system. Being heated up about the economic system. You know, I don't think any of us, you know, at the beginning of this year thought, if, if I could just pay $5 for gas, man, this year would be awesome. And none of us thought that. And, and so what David is saying to us, he's commanding us as believers. Please understand, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a command for you. He's saying, don't get heated up because people commit evil. And I just want to say, well, let me stop you right there, David. <laughs> That's my right as an American that when I see wrong to be furious about it, to be angry about it, to get on social media and tell everyone why they should be angry as well. So the question I have to ask David here is why not? Why shouldn't I get up heated up because of unbelievers? Why shouldn't I be offended? It seems like we live in the age of offense. Everyone seems to be looking to be offended at every moment of every day. Why shouldn't I be enraged? Why shouldn't I seek to counsel those who seek to counsel me? Why? Well, let me give you two biblical reasons why you and I should not get heated up because of evildoers. Number one, and I'll just put myself in this position, I am an evildoer as well. There's that old saying, maybe your mom used it. You know, when you're pointing at someone, there's three fingers pointing back at you. And it's absolutely true. The reason why I should not get so heated up over evildoers is because I am an evildoer as well. How many sins have I committed? I'll be honest with you. I'm the worst person I've ever met. Because I know about my sins. I know about my offenses. I know about my thoughts. I know about my failures. I'm by far the worst person I've ever met. And so if I'm not super heated up because of all my evil, why am I super heated up about their evil? And so you think about when, when that woman, quote unquote, was caught in adultery. You guys know that from the Gospel of John. She was committing adultery, but if you kind of read between the lines, it seems like it was a setup. But be that as it may, she's dragged before Jesus. And there's a test for Jesus. Hey, Moses says we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus says, Whoever's without, the, without sin, go ahead and, and throw the first stone. And they began to walk away. And it's interesting. It says they walked away the oldest to the youngest. Because the older you get, the more you realize just how much of a sinner you are. And so as they moved away, Jesus is, is setting an example for us. Before we're quick to judge and be enraged at others, perhaps we should take some time before the Lord and see what kind of sinner am I? Well, what kind of sinner am I? And that, I think, will help dispel this anger. Well, there's a second reason, though, we're not to be heated up, to be angry at evildoers, because, and it's this, our self-righteous anger does not help the matter. You and I being angry and outraged, making YouTube videos about it, doesn't help anything. You and I blasting people on Facebook, it, it doesn't help the matter. 
You know, the, there's an old saying, and it's a mean saying, but it's this. Having you for help is worse than no help at all. <laughs> okay, have you ever heard that saying? I feel like the Lord says that to us sometimes. <laughs> when we just get angry and outraged, Lord, I'm going to help you out. I'm really going to show people. And Lord's like, I, I wish you wouldn't. <laughs> I wish you wouldn't help me. This is what James tells us in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He says, my lo- beloved brethren... Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man, please hear this, does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So no matter how heated up we are about it, our unrighteous anger, our wrath does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, here's here's the thing. There's a caveat Christians always use. Well, my anger is righteous. Well, who told you it was? You told you it was because I think that's kind of a label we put on there to justify how we do life. But I think if we were to really come, come before the Lord and say, Lord, is my anger justified? Is it righteous? Is the way that I'm treating this person is the way I'm talking about them behind their back. Is the things that I'm, that I'm saying to them, is that, is that righteous? I think the Lord would probably say, you know, it's not. <laughs> so we have to be aware of that. I think it's very, very rare for you and I to have righteous anger. So often our anger um, we get heated up because someone steps on our toes. They infringe on our freedoms. They, they take away our rights in some way. And so we're just angry. So, so I know that what I'm saying is countercultural because so much of what so-called news as well as social media and YouTube is simply a platform for raging against the, the one that the other person views as evil. And this happens both sides, right? No matter where you are in entertainment, no matter where you are politically, no matter where you're, you'll, you'll produce videos raging against the other person. And I just, I, I think as, as I look at this, I wonder, is this helpful? I don't think it is. So what should we do, right? Because it's, it's, it's enough to say, hey, we're, or it's not enough to say we're doing wrong. Okay, this is the wrong way of doing it, okay. But what's, what's the counter argument? What should we do? If we're not to be heated up and fret over evildoers, what should we do when we see evil? Well, we should try to stop evil, absolutely. We should fight against evil, but here's the key. We should do it in the spirit of Christ and not in the spirit of the age. Please hear me. We should do it in the spirit of Christ, not in the spirit of the age and not in the power of our flesh. You know, when, when I was, uh, I don't think I was a believer yet. I can't remember if I was, it was really early. And I remember going by a Christian store and there was a Christian t-shirt and it was back in the day when Tommy Hilfiger was really big, you know, and, and the shirt said Tommy Hellfighter. <laughs> and even as a young Christian or as an unbeliever, I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Is this the best that Christians can come up with? Let's take what the world's doing, slightly alter it and sell that. That's what we've done for so long as believers. How's the world doing things? Well, the world really gets outraged at what they disagree with. The world really just kind of stomps on it and is ugly and everything. Okay, well, let's just do kind of the Christian version of that. That's not what God's called us to. We are not to do things like the way the world does them. Because then Satan just gets everybody kind of fighting with the same weapons, the carnal weapons of warfare, where Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But they're mighty for bringing down strongholds. So, so there's a, a really countercultural way of dealing with wickedness, and it's found in Romans chapter 12. So would you turn to Romans chapter 12 for just a moment? Turn to a few places today. Romans chapter 12. Now, if you're familiar 
with the book of Romans. It's very interesting. Chapters 1 through 11 are essentially this kind of doctrine that, that Paul's laying out. Hey, these are how you should look at things. And then once we get to chapter 12, chapter 12 becomes about, for the rest of the book, is really how to live it out. Like, here's what I've taught you. Now, here's actually how you live it out. Now, Romans 12, I want to look at verses 9 through 21, because this is our alternative to just becoming heated up and enraged, to doing things like the world. Paul's telling us something different. Now, if you have the New King James Version, as I was kind of going back over my study this morning, I, I, I just loved the section title in the New King James Version. Before verse 9, it says, behave like a Christian. <laughs> I just love that. And I was like, well, thanks for the reminder, whoever you were who wrote that in that section. That's what God wants from us. He doesn't say, act just like the world, but wear a Christian t-shirt. He says, be somebody different. You have the spirit of Christ in you. So here's how we should respond to evil. Verse 9, we're going to look at verses 9 through 21. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. And then here's where it gets really personal. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. And do not be wise in your own opinion. And then here's some real practical stuff for us related to the issue we're talking about. Repay some people evil for evil. No. Repay no one evil for evil. Well, they had it coming. Or they said this. Or they had done that. No, 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 no. What does the scripture say? Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And then this is is an amazing one, verse 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. There's plenty of people who won't have peace with us, but it's never to be on our side. From our side, as much as possible, we want to live at peace with people. Want to reach out to people, want to love people. He says, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So, so who does vengeance belong to? The Lord. The Lord, if the Lord wants to avenge you for all the wrong that's happened in your life, that's his business. It's not your business. Vengeance is his. He doesn't share it. It says the Lord, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. There's a lot of argumentation on exactly what's being said there. We don't have time to explore that, but here's what we can know for sure. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In every situation, no matter how bad the world gets, no matter how badly people treat you, you and I as believers never have permission to do things their way. Never. The only way for a believer to overcome evil is with good. And if you, you, if you and I stand before the Lord, say, Lord, good's not working. I just can't do it with good. The Lord says, keep trying. <laughs> That's the only weapon he's given us. 
The only weapon he has given us for combating evil is good. The only weapon he's given us for combating cursing is blessing. The only evil he's, he's given to us as the world is turned against us is to pray for them and love them. That's it. The Lord will use no other weapon. And, and please understand, the day will come when any unrepentant sinner who is deserving of judgment, God will bring the judgment. God will bring the thunder. But that's his domain. That is not our domain. So as I look at, at Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, I'll just be honest with you. I would love to wriggle my way out of these verses. I would love to kind of put all my mind into this and do some fancy theological footwork to get out of it. But it's of no use because we don't overcome evil with evil. We can only overcome evil with good. And that's the cross. Jesus didn't overcome the evil of this world with evil. He came the over, he came, overcame the evil of this world by dying for evil people upon a Roman cross. Let's turn back to Psalm 37, verse 1. Now you're beginning to see why I can only get through four verses. Continues on. says, do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. This is another difficult command that David gives us because we spend so much energy envying the wicked. The reason why people are obsessed with celebrity culture is because for the most part, not all celebrities, but most celebrities have done things in such a way that they've accomplished greatness in this world system. Okay? And, and to get to the top of this world system, you have to cut a lot of corners usually. You have to a lot of do a lot of things wrong. And then we see kind of the, the fruit of their labor and we're like, ooh, I would love to have a life like that. That's why people are obsessed with celebrities. And so we spend so much time envying them. We envy their wealth. We envy their position. We envy their power. We envy their influence and their popularity and their pleasure. We envy them and say, oh, if only my life were like that. Only if, oh, I could, I could own a yacht like that or live a life like that or be adored like that. We want those things. But then David puts it all in perspective in verse two. Notice he says, don't envy them. Why? Because they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. That's the reality. Now, if you've been driving around town lately, you'll notice something very odd. We're in June and most people have green grass. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have noticed that. Have you guys noticed that? It's because we had something strange called rain a few weeks ago. And by my count, it rained like four times in like a 10-day period. And it was just really, really strange. And so now as I'm driving, I see, wow, look at all this green grass. It's something different. But imagine you go out today and sit on your back porch because you want to melt. Uh, but you go out and sit on your back porch and, and you begin to see how your grass is so tall and you begin to envy that grass. Oh, man, look at that grass. Look at how tall it is. Look at how green it's getting. I wish I were like that grass. And then you knew that your lawn guy was coming over this afternoon to cut it all down. That would be absurd. We'd have to get you looked at, right? If that's what you were doing. As you saw all those lifeless clippings tomorrow there on your lawn, should that be an object of envy? But the scriptures tell us that's exactly what's going to happen to evildoers. David is letting us know that it is just as absurd, just as absurd as it is to envy your grass that's about to be cut down. That's how absurd it is to envy evildoers. 
Because they're, they're growing in this world system, but they're about to be cut down. Because soon they will be cut down like grass. For a reminder of this, would you turn with me to Psalm 73? Psalm 73 is one of those I hope that uh, you constantly go to when you find yourself kind of getting heated up with evildoers. You begin to find yourself envying this world system. I just want to read through it quickly because it, it's, it's hard to chop it up. It all goes together. Basically, what we have here is as a guy named Asaph wrote this psalm. And he just looked around and saw the wickedness of this world and how the wicked prosper. And he was, he'd had it. He was super upset about it. We can, we can understand that. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps, steps had nearly slipped. Notice, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So this was Asaph's situation he had fixated he'd focused on the wicked and he was really angry about them i can't believe that they're always doing well so this is what he lays out he says for about the evil for there are no pangs in their death but their strength is firm they're not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like other men for therefore their pride serves as their necklace violence covers them like a garment their eyes bulge with abundance they have more than their heart could wish they scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression they speak loftily they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them and they say so these are the evildoers how does god know and there is no knowledge in the most high Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. So notice Asaph's focus was only on the ungodly. Man, they're just rich and they're popular and they're powerful and everything goes well for them. And, you know, and all of these things happen. And he is just so angry to notice his state in verse 13. This is what he says to the Lord. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. I've washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I've been plagued and chastened every morning. So he's basically saying it's, it's been no point. Serving God is pointless because the wicked get ahead. And what happens to me? Nothing good. That's the place he was been in. And for you and I living in the day and the age that we're in, it's very easy for us to be like this. But notice his main problem is he's focusing, he's fixating on unbelievers. But then everything changes. Notice verse 15, he said, if I had said this, I will speak thus. Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Okay, so in other words, he's saying, if I had just kind of spread this abroad and I had shared this message with everybody, then I would have been unfaithful. I would have been misrepresenting God and what he does. So verse 17, here's how his perspective shifted. He got his eyes off of the unbelievers and he got his eyes onto the Lord. Verse 17, he said, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down into destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment, and they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward, Receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. 
My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God, and I will declare all your works. So vital that we focus on the Lord and not on unbelievers. Now, one more place to kind of to turn to that's related to this. Would you turn near the end of your Bibles to 1 Peter? It's 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 5. Peter gives this instruction, right, to believers. He's writing to believers here, and, and he's, he's basically saying, guys, let's not kind of go back to the evil ways of doing things. We've already done that. Let's do something different. So 1 Peter 4, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. That's the mind of Christ. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So he's saying, hey, as a believer, you know, we were letting go of the, the evil things. We spent enough time doing that. Let's do something different. Let's, let's serve the will of God. He says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness and lust and drunkenness, reveries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, in regard to these, they, so that's unbelievers, think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. And then he says this, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So much of our frustration comes because we're just like, well, God's not getting it done. Just seeing as a judge. But, but Peter reminds us, the Lord's the judge. The Lord's going to take care of it. It's not up to you and me. So as believers, we must understand that all of our sins were judged at the cross. So if we just spent every day focusing on that fact, that all of our sins are, 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 were judged at the cross, we'd be in a much better place. And so we remind ourselves we're no longer under judgment, but unrepentant believers, please hear me, are still under judgment. They're still under condemnation. And if they remain in their own repentance, they'll have eternal separation from the Lord. So should I envy a person who's under judgment? Should, should you like see, well, I wonder who's on death row right now about to get a lethal injection. I want to start envying them. I mean, I just wish I were locked away in a place like that about to be killed by the state. Should that be our heart? But that's our heart when we envy unbelievers. Because what's happening is we're envying people who, unless they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, are going to enter into unending destruction. So we should not pity. I'm sorry, we should not envy unbelievers, but here's what we should do. We should pity unbelievers. We should pity unbelievers because unless they repent, this fallen world, please hear me, is as close to heaven as they will ever get. But for you and I as believers, we should rejoice and we should thank God because this fallen world is as close to hell as we'll ever get. That's encouragement for us to take with us. All right, let's move back to Psalm 37, move into verse 3. Verse 3. David says, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. So he says, trust in the Lord. That word trust means to have confidence in, to be bold, to secure. 
It, it, it expresses the feeling of safety and security that is felt when one can rely on someone or someone else. As a family, we like to go zip lining, and we've done that a few different times. And I, I worked on the high ropes at, at Camp Champions and doing zip line. And, and it's funny, you don't really know if you really trust something until you go zip lining. <laughs> <laughs> when you're, you strap that thing in and it just the harness and the carabiners and the rope and everything is like, okay, it's time for trust. I'm going to step off this platform and we'll, Jesus, I may be seeing you soon. Uh, you know, you, you go out there. And, and that's what the Lord wants us to do with him. The, the Lord wants us really kind of daily to be on that zip line with him. He's like, I want you off the platform. Look at me and trust me. I was walking this week and, and just out of the blue, the, the Lord put these verses on my heart that tied into this message. Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. The problem, the struggle for us as believers so often is that we're like, well, I'm going to kind of trust the Lord a little bit with some of my own understanding and lean on that. But I'm going to kind of mix this thing in and that thing over here. And this is what they said there. And it's just a mess. And we just need to say, well, just what does the Lord say? And I'm going to trust him completely. I'm going to go for him completely. So trusting in the Lord, please hear me. It's the opposite of unrighteous anger toward evildoers. Trusting the Lord is the opposite of envying the workers of iniquity. Because hear me, you cannot trust the Lord if you're focusing on the wicked. You cannot trust the Lord if you're focusing on the wicked. Because what happens is you and I focus on the wicked, then they're saying, this is the issue in my life. This is a dominating factor in my life. Let's be honest, right? We are often are these victims. Well, my life is so bad because President X is in office. And that's why. It's, it's, it's a, well, is the Lord not on the throne anymore? Has, has the Lord abdicated? Is now the president of the United States kind of the primary mover in the universe? We know that to be false, but we lose perspective when we fixate on unbelievers. And so the, the, when we are so upset about the wicked, please hear me. This is what we're doing. This is what I'm doing. We're not really trusting the Lord. We're not trusting that he's good. We're not trusting that he's just. We're not trusting that he has a plan because I don't see how things can work out in this situation. They must not work out. You know, I, I, I sang with Carrie, Jesus take the wheel, but it doesn't seem like he did. <laughs> right? That's, that's what we end up doing. That's good. It's kind of in the recesses of your mind. It was there. All right. So what happens, we begin to trust ourselves. We trust that we know how things need to be done, that we know when judgment should fall, that we know how God should do his job. And we're going to tell him and we're going to be angry with him when he doesn't do his job the way we would like to do him to do his job. But here's the deal. The Lord is not asking us to trust ourselves. Do you, you know, I want you to find in the scriptures on your own, you can go home for homework and, and look through and say, you know, where does it say trust your own heart? Trust what you think is right. Do what you think you should do. Now, the Lord never asks us. The Lord says, I don't want you to trust in your wisdom. I don't want you to trust in your insight. I want you to trust in your perspective. Instead, just trust me. Just trust me completely. And he wants us to trust in who he is. And for a reminder of just who the Lord is, 
that you and I are to trust in. I'm going to read you something that Adam Clark wrote. Adam Clark was a theologian um, from the 18, uh, for the 1700s, I'm sorry. And he has written the best description of God I've ever read. So um, I'm, I'm going to kind of have it up here on the screen as I read through it. It's very easy to find this on uh, this quote on the internet. I think it's just incredibly, incredibly helpful to remind ourselves of who this God is. And so this is what he said about God. He said, God is eternal, independent, and self-existent being. The being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive or influence. He who is absolute in dominion, the most pure, the most simple, the most spiritual of all essences, infinitely perfect and eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing that he has made, illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable in his mode of existence and indescribable in his essence, known fully only by himself because infinite mind can only be fully comprehended by itself. In a word, a being who from his infinite wisdom cannot err or be deceived and from his infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just and right and kind. That's the God that you and I serve. <laughs> That's who he is. And so as we come to grips with that, and I would encourage you to, to find that on the internet. If you can't find it, I'll direct you to it and, and be able to kind of contemplate this reality but the problem with us is not that God's too big, but our view of him is too small. He is plenty big, but we see him so, so little and we're wrong. And so when we place our trust in this God, the one true God who created all things, we can obey the rest of Psalm 37, verse 3. So back to Psalm 37, verse 3, if you're not there. He says this, trust in the Lord. So this is first. Once we've trust in the Lord, well, then what can we do? We can do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. This world is so mixed up because it wants people to do good, but doesn't want them to trust in the Lord. Well, they don't know what good is. They don't have the power to choose true good. And so what happens is they do more harm than help. Oh, this would be good. And this would be good. And this would be good. And it's a mess. So trust in the Lord and do good. Once we trust that the Lord is who he says he is, that he's going to do what he says he's going to do, then we can settle in and we can do our job. We can do good. Every person in this room, if you're a born again believer, you're fully capable of doing the good that God's called you to do. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm going to use a Tesla illustration here. I'm a big fan of fossil fuels. Okay. All right. I love fossil fuels. All right. But the fact of the matter, something that's better about a Tesla than a gasoline car is that all the energy is there immediately. Immediately. As soon as you step on the gas, now it can get you in trouble. Right. But all the power is there. That's how it is when you and I submit to God. All the power we need is available to do whatever he's called us to do. We don't have to kind of warm up to it. And well, God wants me to do this thing, but I've got to really kind of do it. I've got to stretch out. And I got to no. Whatever God wants us to do, the moment he wants us to do it, all his power is at our disposal. And so please understand that. That's what he's giving to us. We can do that good. Now, here's the issue though. Think about when you're out driving. When you're driving, you may have a lot of things to say about the other drivers out there. A lot of encouragement and exhortation uh, for them about how they should do life. But here's the reality. You can only be responsible for your driving. You're only, the only car that you actually have control over is the one that you're driving. And so think about this. If that's true, if even as I'm out driving, I can only drive my car 
well, how in the world can I drive the Lord's car? If, if I can't, as I leave church and I can only drive my car, how in the world do I think I can tell God how to drive and how he's driving this world? How can I do that? There's no way. So let's drive the car God has given us and allow him to drive the car that he drives. There's a saying, you know, that's kind of bandied about a lot, stay in your lane. <laughs> stay in your lane. And, and shouldn't that be held true for us and the Lord? Shouldn't we stay in our lane? Shouldn't we do, I mean, if you want to read the scripture, uh, hopefully you do. As we read the scriptures, you'll see there's plenty that God has said, hey, why don't you do this? There's plenty to do in our lane. And so let's let the Lord kind of do what's in his lane. And this brings us to Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. I'll read it for you. Ephesians 2, 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God hasn't called you and me to be the writer of all wrongs and to you know, tell everybody what an idiot this person is or that person is. God has created us in Christ Jesus for good works. He's called us to do those things that, that he has given us to do and he's enabled us, empowered us to do that. And if we would simply drive the car of our life, then what we're gonna find is we're gonna make an impact for him. This brings us to the parable of the talents. So would you turn for just a moment to Matthew 25? Matthew 25, and look at verses 14 through 30. It's an incredibly helpful parable. And there's a lot more to it that I'm going to be able to get to in this short time here as we begin to kind of wind down our time. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, Jesus said this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Okay, so these talents are units of money. But, you know, in our kind of, we've come to use them as kind of abilities, you know, that God gives us, and I think that's good. So basically what the Lord does is, or the, the king here, who's the Lord, he gives, you know, five units of money to one guy, two units of money to another guy, and one unit to this third guy. And then he wants them to be faithful to use them for his kingdom while he's gone. And, and so this is, uh, again, God has given us certain good works, certain talents, spiritual gifts, abilities. And as we're here on this earth, he wants us to use them in a way that honors him. And so let's see what the guys did with that. It says, then he who had received five talents went and traded with him and made another five talents. Okay, he invested them wisely. There's a return on investment. And likewise, he who had received two talents gained two more. Great. But he had received the one, went and dug it in the ground, and hid his Lord's money. Mm, not good. Doesn't serve faithfully. Doesn't do the good works God's called him to. Verse 19, after a long time. What'd you see that? As we wring our hands, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? <laughs> What's taking so long? We were told right there, after a long time. The Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with him. So he had received five talents, came and brought five other talents. And the Lord said, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. And his Lord said to them, to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You might want to underline that. You might want to asterisk that verse because that's your finish line. That's what you're aiming for. That's what I'm aiming for, to stand before Jesus at the Bema seat where he hands out rewards and to hear those words. 
Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, he who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. And the Lord said to him, how come you didn't get five like the other? No, it's not what he said. It's not what he said. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Exact same commendation. God is going to hold you accountable for whatever gifting he's given you. He's not going to hold you accountable for somebody else's gifting. So you just be faithful with what God's given you and you'll hear that, condom, uh, that commendation. And he says, verse 24, he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, now here's, here's where everything goes wrong in verse 24. Let me just preface it with this. This guy who got one talent had a wrong view of God. Had a wrong view of God had a wrong idea of God. And because of that, he didn't serve the Lord. He didn't see God rightly, so he served him poorly. He had received the one talent, said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. And I was afraid I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, here, here you have what is yours. He's basically saying, God, I, you, you're, you're not a good guy. I was afraid of you. And so I just thought, well, better safe than sorry. Let me just hide it and I'll give it back to you. He says, but the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. So you ought to have uh, deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming would have received back my own with interest. So now take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, will have an abundance. Who does not have even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant to the outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see how this one individual had a wrong view of God and so he didn't do what God asked him to do. And this can be true for us as believers that because we don't see God rightly, we begin to just do things the world's way and it becomes a mess. The good news is God has displayed who he is through his scriptures and his spirit. We can know God rightly. We can have a relationship with a true and living God and we can be empowered to do those good works God has called you to do. If you're a born again believer, God has given you talents, giftings, abilities, opportunities, spiritual gifts. And you might have failed every time up to now. God's still willing to give you more chances. God's still willing to help you invest those talents for his kingdom. All right, back to Psalm 37, if you would. Continuing on here in verse three. We're reminded that when we trust in the Lord, we can do the good that he's given us to do in the power that he has provided. So then he says, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. So really what I take from this, you know, trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. I think it's kind of that idea of bloom where you're planted. That remain where God has placed you and enjoy what he provides through his faithfulness. You see, we often become discontent because of, of what the wicked possess. And so we want to move into kind of what they're doing. Well, what are they doing? So I can kind of get with it. Or where are they living? And I want to kind of move over there. And so, you know, what we should do is say, well, where does the Lord have me? Now, this verse, please, is not a proof text for never moving. <laughs> well, dwell in the land. I can't ever move. No, it's this idea of wherever God has placed you, like make a home there. You know, sit there, be fruitful there, invest there, do what God has called you to do there. We want to not move anywhere until we've heard from the Lord. 
want to stay there. And so as we're trusting the Lord, as we're doing good, what's going to happen is God's going to give us a home there. We're going to be able to dwell there. We're going to enjoy the fruits of faithfulness. We're going to feed off of his faithfulness as he provides for us. Final verse, verse four, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And so this delighting yourself also in the Lord, it really has this idea of making the Lord your complete focus. That just your complete focus, that all your delight is to be in him. That, 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 and that's what's seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? It's, it's making him first in everything. It's, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and everything flows out of that. I love how F.B. Meyer put it. He says, we cannot delight thus without effort. We must withdraw our eager desires from the things of this earth and then and fixing them, fastening and fixing them on him. So, so it's not like we're going to wake up in the morning and all of a sudden somehow we're just like, man, I'm just delighting myself in the Lord. You know, it's just a great time. I forgot this was being videotaped. Uh, but uh, as, as we're doing that, it's going to put effort. We're actually going to have to choose to fix our mind on things. And think about that. Anything in life that you, you like a hobby or something, you have pushed time and effort into it to enjoy that thing. You know, and if it's like, you know, a sports team or whatever it is, you've spent time and energy to, to focus on that. And so it is with the Lord. If, if we're going to delight ourselves in the Lord, we actually have to fix our mind on him. We have to focus on him. We have to get to know him, spend time with him. Now, personally, I'll be honest with you, this delight yourself also in the Lord, I find this to be one of the most difficult assignments in the world. Because I find in my fallenness, I delight myself in what this world has to offer. Oh man, did you see that new burger that just came out? I just want to have that. And, it, and that, that's how this world is built to fixate us on the things of this earth instead of on the Lord. But the promise we have here is when we choose to extricate ourselves from the desires of this world, delight ourselves in the Lord, then the reward is unsurpassed. Notice, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, this is not... The idea that, you know what, well, let me just kind of like give lip service to God and then he'll give me that Lamborghini. Because, no, no, the idea is that as we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us himself. Because here's the sad truth. The sad truth is that this world cannot truly satisfy us. All its pleasures are passing. You know, the, the, you know, the evildoers and the wicked and those who are just rich and prosperous, you see that they're unsatisfied. I love what C.S. Lewis said, he quote, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You and I were made for another world. And the, the Lord wants our heart to be on him, to be on that other world, to, to be with him in heaven. That's his desire for us. So as we direct our delight to the Lord alone, then he can give us what we desire most because we'll be in harmony with him and he will be our desire. Here's the, here's the end goal. Here's what God wants for you. God created us to have a relationship with him. He knows that the only thing that's going to satisfy each one of us is unfettered relationship with him. That's the only thing. So he says, here's the deal. If you focus all your heart, all your desires, all your wants, all your wishes, all your dreams on me, then I'm going to give you the desires of your heart. Because he says, that's the only thing I can satisfy. I can't do all these things that are your agenda and what you want because that's ultimately he loves us too much. 
He said, that's not going to be good for you. That's not going to be helpful for you. That's not going to be what truly satisfies you. He says, only I will truly satisfy you. So delight yourself in me and I'll give you those desires. He will be our desire and he will be glad to give us more of himself. But, it, but again, it's likely to be painful in the process because you and I have lived a lifetime of, of pursuing what we might call junk desires. We all know what it's like to eat junk food. And if you, we eat enough junk food, then what happens is you kind of, you just really kind of become addicted to it. We've done the same thing with desires. We have a bunch of junk desires. You know, oh, this thing, and it satisfies for a little bit. And if I just had this thing, and if only this thing were this way, and the Lord says, it, it's, it's gonna be painful. You're gonna have some withdrawals. But I, I wanna remove those junk desires from you so that you would delight only in me. And what's gonna happen is you're gonna find desire like you've never seen before. So in closing, I just want to reread these four verses and we'll pray. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart.